Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Smith, and I am so glad to be back at Southwood. Uh, maybe we've seen each other here before. Maybe not. That's okay, because I used to work here uh, in the youth department. I was here for two years, uh, but this past year, I've been over at Anderson in the college uh, department, all that good stuff. So I'm so glad to be here, though. There was a men's retreat, which means that everyone's like, ah, crazy. And so I'm here. That's just kind of what happened. They told me this morning that I would be here. No, I'm just kidding. But they, I'm here. And I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad especially that Valentine's Day is on Friday. I know it doesn't seem quite connected, but it is, I promise. Valentine's Day is coming up this Friday, and if you don't have plans yet, I don't either, it's okay, but you should probably make some at some point. And to help us along those lines, I have gathered for us a video that is basically a reconstruction of what two little kids described as a proposal. They, they told a couple kids, hey, look... Play out for us how a romantic evening, how a romantic marriage proposal would go. And this is what they came up with. He's starting. Oh, you look so beautiful. Can I marry you? Oh my gosh, it's a diamond. I hate diamonds. I like amethysts and sapphires and emeralds, but not diamonds. Okay. And I prefer silver, not gold. And it came with um, a... A $20 bill. I don't need that. I got tons of money at home. Well, we could always use some extra cash. I don't need it. Besides, why should you? Why should I marry you? Because I'm famous. I'm oh, famous yeah. at the guitar. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. I don't see your autographs anywhere. Besides, I bet you that you don't even know how to make good soup. I'm a guitar person. I don't spend my time on cooking. Anyways, I bet you. I bet you that you're younger than me. No, uh, I'm 32. You're way too old for me. I'm just joking, I'm 20. I don't like you then. I can. I'm gonna do like any electronics. I don't need electronics. I can I can make video games. I don't care about video games either. What do you want in a husband? I want a person that can cook, a person that can massage my feet. I can do that. And a person who can actually keep the house clean. I can do all those things. Oh, so you can make good soup? You yes. just said you couldn't make any soup. Ah, uh, forget about that. Anyways, goodbye. Um, I am not going to marry you. <sighs> We're women. Women so complex. Man. I don't know uh, if that's exactly how your proposal went, uh, if you are married, uh, but one of the things that I noticed right off the bat, one of the things that really stood out to me with that recreation, with that idea from those kids is they immediately jumped to, what can you do? Right? One of the very first things that the girl responds with is, can you make good soup? Which is a very important question, not to downplay that question, but it's interesting that that's immediately where they went. That our kids get what we know, what we as a culture have accepted, which is that our relationships hinge on whether or not we can do certain things, on whether or not you can be good enough in certain areas to keep that relationship going. 
We know this. We've seen this. Unfortunately, the truth is that a lot of us have felt the negative side of that. We've lost a relationship because we were not good enough. You lost a friendship because you just couldn't meet the needs that your friend had. You maybe weren't able to continue a romantic relationship. You got dumped because you just weren't good enough for that girl or for that guy. Maybe you've never really felt loved or, or respected by your parents. Maybe you feel like they've never been proud of you because you can't be good enough because you've tried and tried and you just feel like you're, you're not reaching that bar. You're not good enough. You haven't done the right things. Therefore, that relationship is fractured. Maybe you've had a spouse. After years of marriage, he says, you're not good enough. You're not doing the things I want, and I'm done. The truth is that our relationships are defined by what we do. We're surrounded by relationships that all depend on whether or not we are good enough. And so as we as believers, we take that idea and we assume that that's how our relationship with God works. We assume that God must have certain requirements for us, that we have to be good enough for the Lord or else he will abandon us. Or maybe that means that we were never really his child to begin with. We assume that I have to read my Bible or I have to pray certain things or I have to go on that service project or go on that mission trip or I have to stop sinning in that area. Or if I don't, then God's going to give up on me. If I don't, then either I will no longer be saved or maybe I never really was saved. This semester, we're looking at the book of Genesis. We're looking at an introduction to our God. We start with his plan his perfect plan in the garden that is fractured by sin. And so we see him move and give a promise to one day restore that creation back to perfection, to restore that creation to its intentional or its original purpose of glorifying him. And we see him give that promise to a certain people, a group of individuals, a family that started with a guy named Abraham that we talked about for the last few weeks. We see God give Abraham this promise of blessing because God wants to move through Abraham and his descendants, not because Abraham did anything awesome, but only because God chose him. By God's grace, he chose Abraham. He worked through Abraham. He works through these people. And this morning, we're looking at Abraham's son. We're looking at the very first of this line of descendants. We're looking at Isaac. And what's amazing about Isaac is he is one of our greatest biblical examples of just a completely useless person. He does nothing good, like nothing at all. It's amazing. It's very impressive, honestly. He does nothing good. And he's such a great example of this useless dude that just kind of stumbles through life. And it also makes him, though, one of the best, one of our greatest biblical examples of the simple truth that God loves you, not because you're good, but because he is good. We see through the life of Isaac that God does not love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. He is good enough. And you're not. Isaac sure was not. 
his uh, story, his life is really funny to me in the Bible because uh, more often than not, he's actually a supporting character. Uh, most of the time when we talk about Isaac, it's because he's involved in someone else's story, right? We see Abraham like doing something and, oh yeah, and there's Isaac. Or we see Jacob and Esau and they've got this cool story going on and, oh yeah, and uh, I guess Isaac there's, is there too, right? He's the side character. He's that guy in the background of the movie, right, about the renegade cop. And he's like the straight-laced cop that's like, don't do it, John. And then John's like, whatever, and blows stuff up. Anyway, right? Isaac is that background. He's that friend. He's that sassy friend in the romantic comedy that's like, he's not good enough for you. And she's like, I think he is. And then they kiss in the rain, and the sassy friend's like, you're right, right? So that's Isaac. Isaac is that sassy friend of the romantic comedy, the side character that no one really cares. He's just kind of there, right? Until Genesis chapter 26. If you have your Bible, you want to open it up to Genesis chapter 26, and I hope you always remember this chapter, because it is the one chapter that Isaac gets to be the main star. It's the one chapter where Isaac gets to step up into the spotlight, be the leading man, and he starts off on a great note. Genesis chapter 26, verse 3, Isaac starts off and he's talking to God. There's a famine where Isaac is living. And so God says, you need to go somewhere. He says, look, Isaac, you need to sojourn in this land. And I will be with you. I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. We start off with Isaac hearing from the Lord. You're going to be blessed, Isaac. You're my man. You're who I'm using. You're who I'm going to work through. You have the descendants that I'm going to bless. I'm going to give this land to you, Isaac. It says, remember your dad? Remember what Abraham did? He was amazing. God says, I will multiply your offspring, Isaac, as the stars of heaven will give to your offspring all these lands. And your offspring, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. God is purposefully bringing to Isaac's mind what his father had done, brought to his mind what God had promised to Abraham. He says, Isaac, all those great things that I promised your dad, I promised them to you as well. And at this moment... We're excited for Isaac. Right? We should be pumped. We're like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is Isaac's moment, right? Chapter 26, is his time to shine? We're excited because we're like, man, I, you know, Abraham was really cool, and Isaac was already pretty cool. Remember, like, he almost got sacrificed, and he was totally cool with it. So that's awesome, right? So Isaac, man, just think of what he can do now that he's an adult, right? Now that God's talked to him, and God's identified him as his main dude. Just think of what Isaac can accomplish. Think of what Abraham did, but Isaac's like, Abraham 2.0, right? He's the sequel to Abraham. It's going to be amazing. And then immediately, I love it. It's immediately in the next verse. We see what Isaac does. He settles in Gerar, okay? So he follows the Lord's command, stays where he needs to be. But when the men of the place asked him about his wife, Isaac said, oh, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Right, now, this situation might sound familiar. It's the exact same thing that happened to Abraham. 
years before, Abraham was chilling with his wife, Sarah. A bunch of people noticed Sarah was really beautiful. So they asked, hey, who, who's that lady? And Abraham was afraid that they would kill him if they found out that she was his wife. So he said, this, she's my sister. Right? Isaac does the exact same thing. Exact same thing. And this would make, honestly, a great Valentine's Day card, right? <laughs> You're so beautiful, it's dangerous, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's good. Hallmark should seize this moment, this opportunity, right? But as great of a Valentine's Day card as this creates, it also shows us a really terrifying view into Isaac's heart. It shows us that Isaac has no faith in the Lord at all. It shows us that Isaac just heard from God that he would be blessed. He just heard from God that he was under God's protection. And immediately, immediately, at just the threat of maybe, maybe getting attacked, this situation that he made up really honestly in his mind, at the just briefest hint of danger, Isaac turns. He's like, oh, Oh, sister. <laughs> hey, sister. Right? Just immediately. Immediately, we see Isaac be unfaithful. And when we see this, we worry about Isaac. Right? When we see this, we think, wow, okay, um, that was a bad move. This unfaithfulness was probably going to take you uh, down a path you don't want to go down, Isaac, right? We, we see him, we're like, man, God's going to have to bring something up against you. Because Isaac is being less faithful than the Philistines. He's being less faithful than the people around him. I know that because the king at that time, Abimelech, who's more than likely the son of the king Abimelech who dealt with Abraham years before, his son, also named Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window, saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, well, because I thought lest I die because of her. So Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife. You would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Because Abimelech respected Isaac's God more than Isaac did. Because Abimelech remembered his dad telling that story about that crazy old Abraham and his sister, who the first king Abimelech had then taken as a wife and got cursed badly by the Lord and all this bad stuff happened to him. So he gave Sarah back. He was like, Oh my gosh, what Abraham, seriously. And so this, this Abimelech, his son remembers that story. He remembers that this Abraham, this Isaac, this son of Abraham, that his God is legit. He remembers that Isaac's God is powerful and should not be messed with. He remembers that Isaac's God is a living, active God. And so Abimelech says, dude, what are you, what are you doing? You're trying to put guilt on us? You're trying to, me- you, you, no one touch him, right? He just turns out to all of his people and says, no one touch Isaac or his wife. She looks like his sister, but it's not. <laughs> Don't buy in. Because Isaac's God is real and moving and powerful. 
something that Abimelech knew, yet Isaac forgot. So when I see Isaac fail like that, I think to myself, good luck. Right? We assume that at this point, God's going to have to discipline Isaac. He's going to have to bring something into his life, whether it's a discipline or a punishment, or maybe it's just a trial. Maybe God's going to force Isaac into some sort of test where Isaac will have to prove his worth. Right? Isaac somehow has to make up for this mistake that he made. Somehow Isaac has to either do something or say something, prove the fact that he can stay God's son, stay God's people, still be worthy of God's blessing. Isaac has to do something to be good enough, right? God's got to have something coming down the pipe that's going to force Isaac to, to shape up. But instead, we look at verse 12, and we find out that Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. But the Lord blessed him, and that Isaac became rich and gained more and more until Isaac became very wealthy. In fact, he had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so much so that the Philistines envied him. If, we'd kept, if we kept reading, we'd see Isaac has so much wealth that God has given him so, much, so many riches that the Philistines, the people around him are like, they envy him, they hate him. They're like, get out of here. They chase him out of town. They're like, you're too successful. Get out, right? That's an intense HOA right there. You're too successful. Get out of the neighborhood. So Isaac has to leave. He's blessed so much that people envy him to the point of hating him, which seems to be strange on God's side, right? Why would he reinforce negative behavior? It looks like God is being a, basically a bad father, Isaac just messed up, and then God blesses him? That doesn't make sense. I have a little niece who's almost four. Her name is Catherine. I have another niece who's almost three, and her name is Penelope. And Catherine and Penelope have reached a very special point in their lives where they are finally able to interact with each other. They're finally able to like play games and go and hang out by themselves without a ton of adult supervision. And it's really cool. They always like to go uh, pretend to eat muffins. I don't really know why, but they're just like, eat muffins, okay. And it's just, they think it's hilarious. And what I've noticed in their playing, what I saw a few weeks ago when they were together in the same house is there was a toy that they both kind of wanted, and so they were having a, you know, a pretty good dispute about who actually got to hold uh, the Barbie from Frozen. And so they were tugging on it, and Penelope quickly, as she was trying to get it back from Catherine, she kind of reached up and she kind of bit the, the legs of the Barbie. It was kind of, ah, got her teeth involved a little bit. And I saw that happen, and I thought, this, this is an omen, like... Something bad will occur from this. We are, we are headed down a dark path. And indeed, we were. Because a few weeks later, or a few days later, I came in. They had been hanging out that day. And Catherine ran up to me, was super excited, and proclaimed to me, Penny bited me. She bited me. 
And she wanted to prove the fact that Penelope had bitten her. And so she lifted her shirt and showed me teeth marks on her stomach. She goes, she bited me right there. And it's still just like red and inflamed and oh, it's terrible. And I just saw that and I thought, wow, okay. I live with a vampire or I've, you know, I have a niece going down a dark path. I knew it. I knew it. I saw it coming. And so I went and talked to her parents. I was like, what, what happened? You know, like what's, what's going on? They're like, yeah, well, Penelope just, she gets really excited sometimes. And she just, she just wants to bite, I guess. Like, it's just what she does. And so she reached out and she, yeah, she bit Catherine's stomach. It's, it's unfortunate. But we talked to her, right? We disciplined her, right? She has great parents. And so her parents went to Penelope and they calmly explained, look, Penelope, you're not, you're not supposed to bite people, right? Carrots, okay. People, no. Not, not allowed. And she was punished, and they told her, okay, don't, don't do that, right? Because that's what good parents do. They, cur- they find a behavior that's wrong, and they help the child not do it again, right? You give them the right direction, a good little push, and say, don't, don't do that, right? Don't bite people, right? It would have been a much different story if her parents had gone to her and kind of patted her on the back and said, yeah. <laughs> Your bottom teeth are sharper, though. Use those next time, right? <laughs> Here's a file, right? Like that's, that would have been a very different situation. And we would have looked at that. And we would have said, wow, that's not the best parenting, right? We would see something wrong with that behavior. They would be reinforcing a negative behavior. And isn't that what God's doing? Isaac just proved himself to be unfaithful. Isaac just broke these laws. He lied and God goes to him and he blesses him. Is God reinforcing negative behavior in Isaac? What is he doing? What's God thinking? What God knew that we can learn is that ultimately that blessing doesn't point to Isaac. You see, the, the Philistines, they, the Abimelech, and then they come back to Isaac. He's already been banished, but they go to him. And they're like, hey, we need to talk. And so Isaac says to them, hey, why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me, you've sent me away from you. So they said, look, 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 we're, we plainly, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you, have done, uh, have done to you nothing but good, have sent you away in peace. For you are now the blessed of the Lord. God blesses Isaac, not so that Isaac would think, ah, oh, this is great. God blesses Isaac because God knows that blessing will ultimately bring God glory. God blessed Isaac to the point where his neighbors, these unbelievers, looked at his life and said, your God is amazing. There's no other conclusion we can reach other than the fact that Isaac, your God must be amazing because we've talked to you and you're not amazing, right? You're a terrible husband, BT dubs, like... You need to go to counseling for that. Isaac, I don't know how you're doing so great. I don't know how you've been blessed. It must be that you are blessed by the Lord. God is not reinforcing negative behavior in Isaac. God is reinforcing the simple truth that he doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. That's what God is communicating. That's what God is reinforcing in the life of Isaac. And we hear that and we want to get it. We want to just wrap ourselves up in that security and think, yeah, God does love me and nothing's going to change that. And I can mess up. 
But the reality is that oftentimes we just can't get there. We know that God loves us. We know that there's nothing we can do to earn his love, to be good enough for him. We know that, we read that, we hear that, and yet we still, just in our deep down in our hearts, we just know that there has to be something I can do. Oh, there has to be something I can do to keep God's love. There has to be something I can do to prove that God did love me, that God saved me. I, there has to be something. We want to do something to either keep that salvation or something to prove it. But the truth is that if you want to do something to keep God's love, you are making a terrible mistake. You are forsaking a concept that another pastor described as a God who cannot love you more and will not love you less. You are telling the Lord, I can do something to keep this salvation. I know you've given me salvation. I know that my faith brought salvation, gave, brought your grace and your forgiveness, but I can do something to keep it. Because we can't wrap our minds around the fact that God cannot love us more and will not love us less. We cannot wrap our minds around Romans 3, verse 3, where Paul is talking about the Israelites. He's talking about Isaac. He's talking about these people that God has chosen to work through. And he says, what if some of them were unfaithful? And Paul knows that they were. What if Isaac was unfaithful? What if Abraham was unfaithful? What if any biblical character in your Bible was unfaithful? What if you were unfaithful? Does that faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, by no means. He's using emphatic language. He's basically saying, no, 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 no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Paul says, your unfaithfulness does not nullify what God has promised. Your decisions and actions don't just cancel out what God has told you to be true. Even if every single one of us is a liar, which Paul knows we are, let God be true. Even if every single one of us was unfaithful, know that God is faithful. Paul says, how could you possibly try to bring works into that equation? Why would you ever think that the God who loved you so much that he died for you would ever just give you up? He says, why would you think that this God who sent his son to die while we were in the midst of sinning, while we were still in our transgressions, Christ died for us? Meaning while we were in the midst of being the most unfaithful children of wrath that have ever existed, God reached down, grabbed us, and saved us. Paul says, why do you think you can do something to negate that? There is nothing you can do to be good enough for God. There is nothing good about you. The only good is found in the Lord. And by his grace, he's chosen you and he saved you. 
He loves you. Paul's saying he loves you no matter what you do. No matter how unfaithful you are. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you trust in his life and death and resurrection, if you believe that Jesus, is, Jesus Christ's death on the cross paid for all the sins you'll ever commit, if you trust in that, you're saved, you're forgiven, you're justified, you've been credited righteousness. That will never go away. Doesn't matter what you do, no matter what you say, you don't have to do anything to keep it. You've got it. Every day I try to tell my wife that I love her. Every day. Whether it's when we wake up or go to work or go home, I try to tell her, look, Susan, I love you. It's not always that intent, but sometimes it's, I love you, right? But I try to tell her at some point, right, that I love her. And I tell her I love you and without ever adding more, right? Uh, I never say, I love you as long as you pick up those clothes and uh, take my car to the oil change place. And could you build a headboard for our guest bed? That'd be great, right? Like that's never, that's never a part of our conversation, Why? Because my love for her is not based on those things that she does. My love for her is based on our relationship. My love comes from the fact that she is my wife. That we are in a relationship together. Now, she has done all of those things because she is the handyman in our relationship. (laughs) And she has built a headboard. I kid you not. She's done those things for me. And she has served me, and she's cared for me in ways that I never even thought people could do that. Like, it was amazing. But what if she did all of those things out of a fear that if she didn't do them, that our relationship would be over? What if she did those things because she thought she had to, to maintain our relationship? What would that say about me? What would that say about our marriage? What would that say about her? Suddenly those things that she did, those words she said, they're not born out of love. They're born out of fear. Do you think that that's how God wants our relationship with him to be? Jesus in John 14 talks about how our obedience should follow from love. He talks about, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. He says, if you love me, you'll do these things and you will feel the love of the Lord. You, you will experience love from me. You'll have communion with, the, with God. You have a Holy Spirit that will help you in being obedient. But ultimately, Christ isn't focusing on just obedience. He's not just saying, make sure you do lots of stuff. He's focusing on that relationship between obedience and love. He's telling his disciples in his upper room discourse before he's about to go die, he says, look, I want you to obey, but out of love. If you're just performing actions, if you're just reading your Bible or praying certain things or going on a mission trip because you're afraid if you don't, our relationship is over, I don't want that. If my actions 
are based out of fear. That is selfish and inward focused. It goes against everything that our Bible tells us, that we are called to love and move and act and serve for God, for others. That's why Jesus told us we need to love the Lord our God. We need to love our neighbor. Those are the greatest commandments. Look up, look out. Don't look in and make sure that I'm okay. Christ said it. Paul said it. You'll see it all throughout our scripture. We are called to serve and obey out of love, not out of a selfish fear. So sometimes we think to ourselves, well, maybe I don't have to do something to keep my salvation. But maybe I have to do something to prove it. Maybe I have to live a certain way or say a certain thing or stop sinning in those areas to prove that I'm a worthwhile investment. And if I don't see that fruit, if I don't see those things happening in my life, then that means I was never saved to begin with. I was never God's child. I was never saved because I'm not worthy. I'm not, I'm not good enough. And again, how is that at all the relationship that God would want for us? How does that align with his character? How would that align with a God who is faithful to the unfaithful? How does that align with a God who loves us, saved us in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our transgressions? That's why Paul kept going in Romans 3. And he talks about, what about the things you're doing? Now that you're saved, what about those things that you're doing? He says, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Well, by a law of works? No, but out by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul says, I don't care what you do. He says, your works are separate from the faith that saves you. You're justified, meaning you are literally credited righteousness. Literally meaning you are given right standing before the Lord, thanks to Jesus Christ. When you put your faith in him, it's not that you're only forgiven of your sins. It's not like you just wiped your debt clean. Instead, you are given righteousness, meaning you are now inheriting his bravery and his compassion and these things that he did and you're inheriting the blessings that he earned and you're you're getting all of these things you get all of that how by faith apart from works of the law paul says you're not saved by your works so why in the world would your works be necessary to prove that salvation it doesn't align with what God has for us. That doesn't align with the relationship that God seems to be displaying all throughout his scripture. Now, it's still important to look at your life. It's still important to take an honest time to reflect and think, okay, am I loving my Lord? Am I loving his people? But you ask yourself those questions, not in an attempt, not in a selfish way to make sure you're okay. You ask yourself those things because You want to love the God who loved you first. You want to be faithful to the God who's faithful to you no matter what. You want to make sure that you are maintaining a healthy relationship with this God who loved you, not because you're good, but because he's good. You want to make sure that you're in line with his will because you know that that's what's best. 
That's why you look inward, not to make sure that you're saved or to maintain your salvation or even to prove your salvation. You look inward to make sure that you're with God's will. You're aligned. You're you're living the life that God wants you to live because ultimately it's what's best. Ultimately, that's the life that will direct more people to God. God wants our obedience out of love. He wants our obedience for his own glory. Not for our salvation. Not for our security. He tells us you're good. Now go in love. Be free. When we hear about this unconditional love, when we hear about the faithfulness of God, the grace and mercy that he pours out freely to us, when we hear about these things, it should inspire us It should motivate us and charge us and convict us to go out and speak that grace, share that grace. I would challenge you this week, think about when's the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? When's the last time you spoke the words that we're all sinners and yet Christ died for us? That whoever puts their faith in him could have eternal life. When's the last time you told that to someone who needed to hear it? When was it? Is there someone in your life right now who needs to hear that? Is there someone in your life right now that needs to hear about God's grace that you've received, not because of your works, but because of your faith? Who needs to hear that? Or maybe where do you need to show God's grace? Where is the person that you need to forgive? And you know it. You know you need to forgive them just don't want to. Who do you need to forgive even though they didn't ask for it? Who do you need to show trust towards? Who do you need to trust even though you're afraid that they're going to be unfaithful? Who do you still need to be faithful towards? Who do you need to love despite all the faults that you can think of? Where is God calling you to share that grace that you've received? My wise wife who can build headboards and I were talking about this last night. And she shared with me something that she'd heard from a friend this weekend, quoting this woman who I think writes. And she basically was talking about our, the place of Christianity in our culture and kind of how is it meshing? How's it fitting with American culture, with the larger world culture? Where does Christianity really fit in with all that stuff? And what she basically pointed out, the really great observation she made was everyone really basically knows what Christians are against. But does everyone know what Christians are for? We do a great job of telling everyone the laws that we don't want passed and the organizations that are completely misguided and these different lifestyles and these different things and that decision and this decision, and we don't like any of that stuff. We do a great job of communicating that over and over and over again. We are, do a great job of showing our world what we are against. But does our world know what we're for? Are we using our mouths to only attack things? Or are we sharing the gospel? Are we showing through our actions grace and love and forgiveness? In light of what we've received from God, Are you living out that same grace you give, you've received?
we're going to take a moment and pray. And as we do that, I would just challenge you to be still and, and quiet and take a moment to ask the Lord to show you where do you need to be showing more grace? Ask the Lord to reveal to you who do you need to be sharing the gospel with? Ask the Lord to show you maybe where the conversation can happen. Maybe after a meeting or after a class or in your living room. Ask the God to reveal to you where can you be showing that grace that you've so generously received? Where can you be obedient? Not out of a sense of obligation or out of a selfish fear, but where can you be obedient out of love for the God who loved you because he's good? So let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you are good, that you are great, that, Lord, you love us even when we hate you. God, if you would guide our steps this week, God, use your spirit to to push us towards the people that need to hear your grace, towards the people that need to see your grace. God, let us not be Isaac, constantly forgetting your faithfulness. God, don't let us be an example like he was. Instead, Lord, let us, let us be an example of what it looks like to walk with you daily. Lord, we know we will make mistakes, but God, we know that you will pick us up. If you would take this moment, ask the Lord, show you where do you need to be showing someone grace? Who do you need to love better? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to give trust? Who do you need to be faithful to, even though they don't deserve it? Ask the Lord to show you that person and to empower you by his spirit to do so. Ask him that right now. And if you would take a moment, ask the Lord to show you maybe where do you need to be speaking grace into someone's life? Who do you need to share the gospel with? Ask the Lord that maybe if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, ask God to start a conversation with a friend that brought you here or, or come and talk to me. Ask the Lord to start a conversation that you can figure that out. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, ask the Lord to show you who needs to hear it. Which roommate or family member or person at work or person at school? Who needs to hear the gospel explicitly? Ask the Lord to show you who that person is and to provide an opportunity for you to share that grace. Ask him right now. Lord, once again, we thank you for this grace. God, we thank you for the examples like Isaac and Abraham, Jacob and Joshua. And God, we just thank you for all these men and women that you've placed in our scripture that we can look to that we can learn from their mistakes. God, thank you for guiding us and instructing us in that way. Lord, we just ask that we'd be faithful to learn. God, empower us to make those changes this week, to have those conversations, to show that love, to show that grace. We pray this all according to your will. Amen. All right, we love you guys, and we'll see you in a week.